Hope you're ready to listen, okay? Take your Bibles if you can and stand with me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians 3, verse 20. The Bible says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How many are looking for Him today? Father, we love You so much. And Father, oh, how we need You today. Lord, hide me behind the cross. Because we would see Jesus. We ask in his name. And all God's people said, Amen. You can be seated. I read this morning from the King James Bible for our conversation is in heaven. From whence we also, also we look for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Strong's Greek and Hebrew Dictionary, The word for conversation there is not a reference to speech, to our words. That word in the Greek, it denotes a community, a commonwealth, a citizenship. If you are a child of God today, you hold citizenship in heaven. That's where our Citizenship is. And because we are born again, and because our citizenship is in heaven, we need to be living our lives every day that is continually moving us closer to heaven. We're going there one day. Jesus paid the price. And we have to always keep in mind Our citizenship is in heaven, not here on this earth. And so we need to see ourselves as resident aliens. We are living temporarily in a foreign country. And I got to tell you folks, over the last few years, my country is becoming more and more foreign to me. We've lost our distinctiveness as a nation. So we're to live here as resident aliens, temporarily in a foreign country, because our home is somewhere else. Our home, thank you Lord, is somewhere else. Rick sang about it a moment ago. And Rick, I love singing about it too. But one of these days we're going to experience it. Every special privilege of our heavenly citizenship and only because we belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to Him. I want to go back to our text verse in the last half. Look what it says. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
our citizenship's in heaven. Our eternal home is in heaven. And the Bible reminds us it's from that very place. We are expecting our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and take us home. Sometimes it's a little difficult to express the original language in English. And when Paul says we look, that word look, the Greek word is about that long. I did look it up. I can't pronounce it. I won't try. But it means and it signifies standing on your tiptoes. We're not just looking. We are eagerly looking We're straining as we wait for our Savior to return from heaven. We know from the Word of God that Christ has come to this earth once. We know He returned to heaven in a cloud after He raised from the dead. Acts chapter 1, look at verse 11. Which also said, Ye men of Galilee... Why stand ye gazing up unto heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Christ ascends. And the disciples were gazing. Yesterday afternoon, when we got home, it was just before dark. And I was in the, in, in our, at our kitchen table, and I was kind of looking at our side yard, looking at our weeds that grown in my yard. And I was gazing. And Pam said, what are you looking at? I said, well, nothing in particular. I'm just gazing. I want to tell you, that's not what they were doing here. They were looking intently. They were standing on their tiptoes. Because remember, can you imagine as those disciples are standing there and they're staring into the sky, these two angelic messengers show up on the scene. And here's what's interesting. Now keep in mind I don't think Jesus, at least it's not recorded anyway in the scriptures, I don't think Jesus and a fellow stand back for a minute. Uh, I don't think he said, Lord, beam me up. I think it happened all of a sudden, don't you? And these angels show up, and the disciples are not sure what's going on. And these angels confirm without a doubt what had just happened. Jesus has been taken away and he went back to heaven. They confirm what happened. But they didn't just leave the disciples with that point. That's true. He, the angel reminded the disciples of a very important promise that Jesus made. He said, someday, one of these days, one of these glorious days, You will see him the same way he went, the same way he is gone. One day, you're going to see him return. He is coming back. 
In John 14, verse 3, very familiar passage. Jesus tells the disciples, if I go away, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Notice those words. I will come again and receive you into myself that where I am, there you may be also. Church, hear me this morning. We have the promise of the sure return of Jesus Christ. He is coming again. This same Jesus, the angel said, as he went, he's coming back. He is coming back. So that's why we ought to be standing on our tiptoes. That's why we are expecting the Savior to return from heaven. And my friend, he's coming a second time. Glory to God. So we are expecting and we're waiting and he, we're expecting when he will appear a second time. But we mentioned this last week, he's coming again not to deal with sin. He already did that 2,000 years ago. But now he's coming a second time. And I want to tell you, those who are standing on their tiptoes watching Those who are eagerly waiting, when he comes a second time, we will not be disappointed. We will not be disappointed. And because this is a fact, and and by the way, I can't overemphasize, church, it's important what we know about the Word of God. It's important what we know about Jesus. It's important that we know what Jesus Christ and what God and the Holy Spirit does for us every day of our life. Thank God. Thank God He intervened in our lives. And He's done so much for us. And because our citizenship is in heaven, we need to seek heaven with every thing we have. Everything we have. Our lives ought to be so different, markedly different, that nobody has to ask, where are you going? I'm telling you, folks, I'm going. I am going to heaven. This world is not my home. So, Lord willing, and I don't wouldn't mind if you come back right now. Okay. But, Lord willing, this morning, I want to take some time and look at these, to talk about heavenly things. How many are on the way to heaven this morning? All right. Amen. Follow with me here. Well, because we are on the way to heaven, I think heavenly things ought to permeate our lives. And so today our goal, and probably next week, is how how should heavenly heavenly things, how should they affect our lives? What difference should they make in our lives? The first thing I want to look at, we've already discussed it for several weeks, but we are told in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. 
How many know if you are born again, you are risen with Christ? We'll explain that more in a moment. And because we are, and I know we've shared uh, quite a bit about this and we talk about a command, and it is a command, we're to seek heavenly things. But I want to say this morning, when I consider the fact that I am a citizen of heaven, because I am, that makes me want to seek heavenly things. Now think about that. I want to seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Now let me take some time to explain. <clears throat> Isn't that what Nehemiah did? And Ezra, yeah. We did that in Sunday school. We, if you're a child of God, we have been raised with Christ, and we were raised with Christ through baptism. Let me say it again. If you're a Christian today, you have been raised with Christ, and you were raised with Christ through baptism. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Let me camp here for a second. Of course, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. He's writing to us as well. And Paul says, you have been buried with him in baptism. And I want you to know that most likely the Colossian believers were baptized at conversion. And they could vividly see that experience in their mind. Somewhere there was a body of water and they were baptized. They were immersed under water. You were, they were buried under water. And they can recall that experience. Romans 6 verse 3. Paul says, know ye not? That so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. That amazes me. Because what we're talking about this morning is something that happened at the moment we were saved. At the moment we were saved. And Paul says, don't you know something here? And I remind you, church, it's important what you know, and that's why you need to read the Word of God. Don't just take what I say. And by the way, if all you hear is what I get, you're going to start to death spiritually. You need to read the Word of God yourself. But Paul says, look, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into His death? Now remember, there is a physical baptizing and a spiritual baptizing. 
And certainly whether the believers at Colossae or in Rome, they would know about water baptism. But Paul says you need to understand there was a spiritual transaction that took place as well. And so Paul said baptism, the water baptism, parallels the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it also, hear me well, it also parallels and portrays the death, the burial of our simple ways of life. We have died out of this world. We've been buried. The old man is dead. So how are we buried with Christ in baptism? Now again, in the early church, and you can search all day long and you will never find an exception. In the early church, the church in Paul's day, believers were baptized by immersion. That is, new Christians were completely buried in water. In fact, the Greek word for baptize, it means to immerse. And so as Paul was writing, whether it be the church at Colossae, the church at Rome, any church he spoke about this topic, they understood, without a doubt, the form of baptism to symbolize being buried with Christ. And they also understood being buried with Christ was a picture of the death and burial of their old way of life. When Jesus died, our simple nature died with him. When Jesus died, our old nature died with him. And in fact, that is what the Bible refers to as a spiritual circumcision. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 11. Paul said, in him, in Christ, you were, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Notice this. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, folks, I know I'm giving you a lot here this morning. But I want you to know, I want you to go home today knowing something. Jesus made a difference in your life. In your standing before God. And so baptism also portrays the death of our old nature. And when those believers were immersed, they died, they were buried Symbol of that. Coming out of the water, coming up out of the water, symbolized the resurrection to a new life with Christ. We've been raised to walk in the newness of life. But it also symbolized our future bodily resurrection. And I want to tell you folks, it's not good English. I don't think it is anyway. Ain't no grave going to hold his body down. Amen. Our faith is in the power of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. 
And that same power, that same faith that we have, is in the power that one day is going to raise us from the dead. So we were buried with Christ in baptism. Romans 6, verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into his death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Notice this. Even so, we also should walk in the newness of life. Now remember, how should heavenly things affect the way we live? This is one way. We walk in the newness of life. And the very fact... Preacher, how do you know it's a fact? The Bible says so. The very fact that we have been resurrected implies that we have died and that we have died to the things of this world. Colossians 2, look at verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic Principles of the world. Why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? I find it kind of interesting. I've read several verses so far. And several have started out with the word therefore. Therefore. Therefore we're buried with him by baptism. Romans 6, 4. Therefore, since we've died with Christ, it has to have an effect on our lives. And as believers, we have died with Christ. And because we have died with Christ, we are no longer under the power of the basic principles of this world. We no longer have to follow all those evil spirits, those demonic powers that work against Christ. Because folks, when Christ died, he disarmed all of them. And we don't have to live that way anymore. So we have died with Christ. The Bible says so. And so now that I've died with Christ, I am no longer under those powers or those authorities. Christ is my authority now. So our death rescued us from our present slavery to sin. And so Paul asked a good question. Why in the world? Because you've died to those things. Why in the world would you even think about submitting yourself to a conquered power? It doesn't make sense. Don't submit. Romans 6, look at verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't miss this. If we have identified with Christ, if you're born again, 
What is true for Christ can be true for us. It can be true for us. And this identification that we're talking about, it begins in the mind. It's an act of spiritual reckoning. An act of accounting. The word for reckon here, it means to consider. It means to count, to declare something. So understand this. Now that we're saved, thank God, we can consider ourselves dead to sin. We are dead to sin. And just as a dead body cannot respond to temptations or enticements, neither can we respond to them. We're dead in Christ. But the good news is we've died with Christ, but we are alive to God because we have been given a new life and a new lifestyle And we have been given the sure promise of eternal life. I'm going one day. And so now that we have died to the world. So how does heavenly things affect our lives? Now that we have died to the world, we must live no longer like the world. We've got to live different. So what does that mean on a practical level? Hear me well. We don't tell the same jokes they tell. Amen. We don't wear the same clothes they wear. Anybody awake this morning? Amen. Are you dead to the world? Have you died to sin? Have you been raised with Christ? And if you have, we're to seek those things are above. And that word seek is a verb. And it implies a persevering effort. We continually seek those things which are above. We're to be constantly seeking those things. Not just a slight effort. We're to seek it with everything we have. So I need to seek those things. The question I had to ask, Lord, what are those things? What are those things above? Well, obviously from the wording of it, it has to be heavenly things, right? It's got to be heavenly things. Because that's where my Savior and your Savior sits on the right hand of God. Amen. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, Paul gives more detail about what those heavenly things are. Look what it says. There's our word again, therefore. As the elect of God, oh, I love this, holy and beloved. Oh, man, isn't that good? Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But notice verse 14. But above all of these things, put on love, which is the bond 
of perfection. You need a little glue in your life? It's love, right? Verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. <coughs> Excuse me. Some deep stuff here. Because we have put on the new self, because the old man is dead, and we put on the new self, our clothing is pure. We have been clothed with a robe of righteousness. And my friend, we're to spend our lives maintain that purity and our lives ought to have that purity on display. We're to come out from among them. Why? Because we're God's chosen people. Paul said, as the elect of God, as the chosen of God. Then he says, the beloved, we're loved by God. We are chosen and we're loved by God. So why am I to display purity? Because I am God's chosen, part of God's chosen people. Because I am holy and because God dearly loves me. And he loves you too. So God has saved us by his goodness. He saved us by his mercy, not by our own merit. And because we've received such incredible grace from God, that ought to cause us, you and I, to gladly lay aside our sinful desires and put on that new nature that God wants in our lives. Put on that new nature. And my friend, that nature pleases God. So how do we do that? How do we seek heavenly things? Well, we have that here in verses 12 through 17, Colossians 3. The first thing we have to do, we have to imitate the compassion and the forgiveness of Christ. That's in verses 12 and 13. The Bible says we put on kindness, we put on humility, we put on meekness, we put on long-suffering, we put up with one another, even Dick Harvey. It's hard to do something. I know it. But you know what he tell you? It's hard to put up with me too, all right? But we do. And we forgive one another. We imitate the compassion of Christ. Second of all, according to verse 14, Colossians 3, love's our guide. 
And Paul said, above all these things, of all these things we've listed, love, kindness, charity, all this, Paul said, put on love. And then in verse 15, he said, let the peace of God. Oh, aren't you glad for the peace of God? Let it rule in your hearts. So what's the, what's the key here? How do we seek heavenly things? Whenever we put on all of those virtues that Paul lists, we take the glue of love and we bind them together. And my friend, that will lead to a peace the world could never give you. It'll be a peace between individuals. It'll be a peace in your life. It'll be peace among the members of the body of believers. A peace that passes understanding. And then in verse 15, we seek heavenly things by being thankful. And folks, I want to tell you, whenever we have an overriding attitude of thankfulness, when we have a constant gratitude in our hearts for all that God has done for us, think about that, in giving us salvation, the fact He made us part of the body of Christ, and all these other virtues that God wants to do are so much easier to put into our lives. So much easier. The fifth way to seek heavenly things is to keep God's Word in you. Folks, I cannot overemphasize that. Bible teaching ought to be a vital part of your life. It ought to reside permanently in every believer. And we do that by study. Uh, we do it by attending corporate worship. We taught in Sunday school. We do it by attending Sunday school, Bible study, master's men, Lydia Lady. We gather together to study and learn the Word of God. We keep God's Word in our hearts at all times. God's Word controls our life. And the sixth thing we do, we go out into the world and we represent Christ. Think about that. Everything we say, everything we do, should be done in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything. And we have to realize, folks, wherever we go, guess who goes with us? He goes. Whatever we say, guess who hears it? He does. In fact, we don't have to say it. He knows what we think. And so we have to realize, as we go out into our world, His constant presence. And so we always have to bring glory and honor to Him in every aspect and every activity of our daily lives. So are we seeking those things? Do these things have a place in my life? Are they there? Because the Bible is clear. We're to seek those things where Christ sits. And the Bible says that Christ is sitting on the right hand of God. We read a few moments ago in Acts chapter 1 verse 11 that Christ was taken to heaven. That's where he is. Excuse me. In Acts 7, in verse 55, as Peter's being stoned, what could happen? But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, 
gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, folks, I realize Stephen saw Christ standing and don't know for sure, but I I think uh, he's showing Stephen, hey, Stephen, don't worry, but I'm on your side. I got this, all right? But the fact of the matter, he's at the right hand of God. He sits at the right hand of God. Again, Colossians 3, the last part of verse 1, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So what does it mean? What does it mean that Christ sits at the right hand of God? Why is that so important? Understand this, folks. The position of Christ on God's right hand reveals his power, his authority, and his position as both judge and advocate. If you are a Christian, then he's your advocate. If you die lost, he'll be your judge. And I want to tell you, you don't want that to happen. You don't want that to happen. So sitting on the right hand of God tells us of his power, his authority, and his position. Hebrews 1, verse 3. We'll be there in Sunday school next week, by the way. Speaking about Christ, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, look what he did. He sat down on the right hand of of the majesty on high. So right there in that one verse, Hebrews 1, 3, we see two main themes about Christ. His sacrifice and His exaltation. His sacrifice and His exaltation. Jesus Christ came into a world and by Himself, He cleansed His people from the ugly stain of sin. How many are glad for that? Amen. Because sin destroys our ability to know or even approach God. But when Christ purified us, our record became clean. Our record became clean. God looks at us through the blood of Christ and He sees us as though we have never sinned and He clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Folks, I want to tell you, that's the best trade I've ever made. Ever made. Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he, that's God, has made him, that's Christ, to be sin for us. Who's us? Put your name there, okay? Amen. Put your name there. Who knew no sin, and not as Christ who knew no sin, that we, you and I, might be made the righteous of God in Him. What a privilege! What a privilege to be a child of God! Jesus purged us from our sins. He cleansed us. He provided that purification. But He also provided a superior sacrifice, and that sacrifice was Himself. He gave Himself as a ransom for many. And I want to suggest this morning, there is no greater sacrifice for sin greater than the sacrifice 
offered by the Creator by His death on the cross. He died in our place. Jesus came, came into our world. He died for their sins. He cleansed the world from the domination of sin. He took the penalty on Himself of our individual sins. And He died in our place. No wonder they call Him the Savior. He died in our place. Guess what? All the penalties have been paid. Every penalty has been paid. And we can be completely clean. All because of what Jesus did on Calvary. He cleansed our every sin. But the writer of Hebrews said when Jesus finished that task, he ascended to heaven and he sat down on the right hand of the Father. His work was complete. And that signifies that, but also signifies his exalted position. All the earthly priests in the days of Moses and the New Testament days, they would stand and they would continually offer sacrifices. Their work was never finished. Folks, the sacrifice of Christ is final. It is finished. We read Hebrews 1, 3 a moment. Look at the last part again. It sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. I'm not going to read it this morning. That's where he's quoting from. And here in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, we see two Old Testament thoughts expressing how great God is. First of all, number one, He's the majesty in heaven. He is the majesty in heaven. Before Him, all the angels bow and worship every creature in heaven. But also, a second thought, it reveals Christ's position. And Psalm 110 refers to that. At the right hand of God. So what does it mean to sit at the right hand of God? To be seated at the right hand of a monarch means to literally be his right hand man. He's God's right hand man. And what a tremendous picture of Christ's power and authority over heaven and earth. I will go ahead and read Psalm 110, look at verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies Thy footstool. Don't miss the importance of this. This is the only place. This is the only place in the Bible where we read that anyone but God is described as being enthroned with power. 
Jesus Christ, our Lord. So why should we seek heavenly things? Because our Savior, who's coming back from heaven, our Savior, Jesus Christ, sits at the right hand of God. He has been exalted above everything except God himself. So to seek the things that are heavenly, it means we search out the thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we search them out in view of the practical walk we have down here. But I want to tell you something, folks. The thoughts of this world are diametrically opposed to the thoughts of God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And the philosophies our world is pushing are opposed to God's thoughts. In our practical walk as Christians, we must not allow those vain philosophies to guide our life, but our life ought to be guided, ought to be guided by thoughts of Christ. So the question I have is this. Are you seeking heavenly things? Let's stand together. Father, we love you today. And we thank you for who you are. And truly, Lord, your word... can be shallow enough to wade in, but deep enough to be overwhelmed with. And Father, we've only scratched the surface of what you've done for us in Christ. And so Lord, help us to seek heavenly things with all that we have. And Lord, help us to allow those heavenly things affect the way we live our lives here and now this week. I pray, Lord, that you would send conviction to where it's needed. Lord, that you would draw all of us, each one, nearer to you. That we might be more like you. And Father, to know the privilege we have of knowing Christ as our Savior. And Lord, the good news is anyone can be right with God if they'll come to Christ confess and repent of their sins and say, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life. Have your way right now in this time of meditation and prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.